Take your Bible, turn to John chapter 18. John chapter 18, we hit the turning point in the book. This is where it feels like the wheels come off and everything changes. We leave this section of teaching and teaching and teaching and teaching and get to the section of death and resurrection. In John chapter 18, we're going to be in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So we ask them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask your blessing upon your word. This is your word and we are your people. We ask that you would make this your sermon. That we might hear from heaven, not have our ears tickled, but have our faith strengthened, our sin killed, and your fruit to grow. Give help, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to picture a a story in your mind, an occasion. It's in a classroom. There's an English teacher standing up front. She's teaching the students, and the students have all read a book, and they gather back together, and the teacher standing up front in front of the students says... Okay, Johnny, tell me, what do you think about the story? And Johnny chimes in he, real quick. Oh, it was great. It had these gangs in it. And when the gangs got angry at each other, they kind of lied to each other. And everybody died. It was fantastic. I love the story. Everybody's dead in the end. 
And it's a little morbid, but it sounds like a preteen boy. You could get it. It makes sense. Of course it's interesting. Everybody gets killed in the end. And the teacher, kind of not entirely impressed, looks at the, you know, the sweet little girl on the other side of the room and says, well, all right, sweetie, what, what, tell me what you thought about the story. And she's like, oh, I loved it. It was wonderful. It was just the best love story. I loved how they showed that true love can conquer anything. The teacher stands there and kind of scratches her head and goes, yeah, I could have sworn it was about when teenagers lie to their parents, everyone dies. <laughs> of course, it's Romeo and Juliet. Of course, the little boy's going to be excited because everybody dies in the end, and they do. If you've read the story or remembered it all, remember, everyone dies. And of course, the little girl's going, oh, it's wonderful. It's this great love story. And, of course, the the teacher, the parent, is thinking it from the perspective of her own kids and is like, when you lie to your parents, everyone dies, which, you know, it's true, I guess. But you see how kind of different perspectives shape how you view the story. It's the same story. The same events happen. Nothing's different. But the different perspective kind of helps you to understand it differently. And it's intriguing how God in his infinite mercy has given us one story about Jesus. It's one true historical event. But he intentionally gave us four gospels to tell the same story with different personalities. And it's, it's fun. It's a joy of having four gospels because you get to see how Mark is just excited with action. It's like boom, 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 boom. And John is all about words, and he's an artist, and he he talks in themes, and he talks in emotion, and he talks in very kind of obscure, abstract pictures. And you have Luke, who is a doctor, medical, everything kind of includes all of the little details, and it's kind of more clinical feeling. And it's fun how all of these highlight different elements of the story. And this is one of those passages. In fact, really the rest of the book is, as we get to see this happen in multiple gospels over and over again, but to see specific things highlighted. Said a little differently, John is preaching a sermon to us here. The Holy Spirit is preaching a sermon to us, even in how this is written. The specific details that are included. The specific details that are not included. I mean, John knows them. He's there. I mean, he, he kind of neglects to mention that Jesus heals the kid's ear and puts it back on. Why is that not in there? Well, the way that John tells us is going to highlight a couple of key things which we're going to look at. That's the main kind of point of the sermon here is to look what's specific to John. But in order to do that, again, a little review to get us back to the picture, to what's happening. You remember, they've come into Jerusalem. They've had the triumphal entry, which we love to remember as the like, yay, happy moment. But we forget the rest of that, that he goes into the temple. He yells at everybody. He beats them with a whip. He runs them out. And then he goes home and everybody's like, well, what happened to the Messiah? I mean, he was supposed to overthrow Rome and like, I got Roman guards outside. Why did he not kill them all? And this giant crowd that was ready to crown him as king is suddenly ready to kill him. And it's very interesting, and there's all the Jews everywhere, and it, the whole town is full. The population has like quadrupled, think, you know, any of the cities along the path of totality with the eclipse last week. Like, uh, the population is just insanely high. 
And so they go to celebrate this religious feast. They've gone to celebrate Passover together. And in the middle of that, Jesus takes the time to give them some of his most intimate teaching. And as he's taught, you can get it here in John, he, what has he taught them with? And so much of it is he, he's going to be with them. The Spirit's going to be with them. God will accomplish it. Don't be afraid. God is at work. It's almost like he knew he was getting ready to die. Of course he does. And 17 gives us this great prayer, his high priestly prayer. And you remember what he was praying. The primary content there was that God would keep his people. They belong to Jesus because the Father has given them to Christ. And that God would keep them and keep them well. And keep them in joy and keep them in unity. And keep them in the presence of God. And it's in light of these words, this union with Christ, this protection by Christ, this prayer that God would keep his people, that you come to John 18. And that is absolutely imperative that we have that looming in the back of our minds. In fact, actually, John makes it abundantly clear. How does it? When Jesus had spoken these words, it's not, oh, and then next this happened. But it's in light of these words, in light of this prayer, in light of all that's just been said, then we pick up this part where Jesus goes out with his disciples. And the first kind of point that John brings out that we're going to look at is that Jesus is fully in control of the plan of salvation. This is something John specifically highlights, not in a way that Matthew does or anyone else. John highlights Jesus is fully in control of the plan of salvation. So Jesus has just been speaking about all of this and how he was going to die and that how he would protect his people and asking for the Father to do so. And he leaves and he goes out. And where he goes is significant. He goes across the Kidron Valley, which we know exactly where he walked. It's a brook that is a winter flower. It only has water that flows in the winter. We know exactly where it is. Uh, we also know that the only other real kind of major time this is mentioned in the scriptures is David walking the same path while he's uh, dealing with Absalom, both of them walking in shame. And so you see this kind of great reiteration of David having fled in shame, Jesus walking in what's going to be shame. Uh, David comes back in victory and what's going to happen with Christ? He goes to a garden which his disciples enter with him and it's a garden that they know well. In fact, we suspect, most scholars suspect, they're probably sleeping either in the garden or in a slight cave connected to the garden or a house connected to the garden. It's most likely a place that they're staying. Remember, Jesus doesn't have a house. There's no place for the Son of Man to lay his head. He was dependent upon the hospitality of his followers. So it would not have been unknown where he was going to be. It would have to be lined up because he would be staying with people uh, in, you know, in the midst. It would be the equivalent. Like if he came here, he would just say, All right, who's putting me up this week? And then who's putting me up next week? And who's putting me up the next week? And it's significant because Jesus knows what's taking place. John tells us that in verse 2. G- now Judas, who had betrayed him. Oh yeah, by the way, he has the devil in him now. Also knew the place. In fact, actually, he doesn't just know the place. He knows Jesus is going to be in the place. He knows Jesus is heading there, and Jesus knows that he knows that he's heading there. 
The point being, Jesus is fully aware of what's taking place in the story. He's fully aware of where the trap is going to be sprung. And instead of fleeing from the trap, he walks directly into it. Now, we have maybe by the flannel graph in Sunday school been led a little astray about what this trap looks like. Verse 3, Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And I remember this story from a child, and I remember portraits of Jesus and his you know, 11 disciples at that point, and Judas walking up with a couple of priests and then a couple of soldiers. <clears throat> Wrong answer. This is actually a much more kind of gruesome and gripping portrait. It's at night. You remember, John is using, he's, a, he's an artist. I mean, more than even a writer, he is an artist. It's spectacular. He loves to tell stories in light and dark. And so you get this picture of being out in a garden. There's, you know, fruit trees or olive trees around or something. It's a little bit greener than everything else around. It's at night. It's black. It's dark. No electricity. And then you would most likely hear the noise of the soldiers coming. And if you were the disciples, you would have been a bit panicky because it's a big noise. It's not the noise of a couple of three or four or five people coming. This is a big noise. In fact, actually, the soldiers that are coming are Roman soldiers, and that's a big noise because they carry big weapons and big armor. And they come in with torches, and as they enter into the garden, you finally begin to see how much of a problem it is. And the reason why we know that is that term for a band of soldiers is a technical term. We suspect John is not using it technically, but it's a technical term for 600 soldiers. 600. There's a term that's smaller that would have fit 200, and terms that would have been much smaller for that. He opts for the big one. The idea that we get is, okay, maybe it's not 600, but, you know, when you talk to a kid and they're like, well, how many were there? There were hundreds! What what is the point behind that? (laughs) It's a lot. In fact, actually, it's a big enough number that by torchlight, it's really hard to count. And you you think it, it makes sense. They're going to capture 11 men. They're not going to capture one. You send all the troops in because they're expecting mutiny. Because Jesus, I mean, Judas has been listening to Jesus and he's been hearing him say, look, I am the true king. I'm going to announce myself as true king. And Judas has read the Old Testament. He knows he's expecting this is the king that's going to overthrow Rome. We know it. It's told to us throughout the Old Testament. It's told to us in Daniel. He's going to overthrow Rome. This is the true and mighty king. You don't go into that with just a couple of soldiers. It's not like, hey, let's bring our six buddies. We'll go arrest Jesus. Like, no, you bring everyone. You bring everything you have. You bring the, all the, you empty the garrison. You send them all. Think how panicky this is for the disciples. As they stand in the garden, they stand there with Jesus and the torches come in. And again, torches are they're spooky in their own right because you only see just that little bit right next to them. Probably can't see faces too well. And then the torches come in and then they begin to divide until they're fully circled. They're flanked. There's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to go. There's no way to get away. It's, oh no, Rome has us now. But they're still scared, the soldiers are at least, and so they've stayed far enough away 
that the darkness still resides in the middle. And then Jesus, verse 4, knowing all that would happen to him, steps forward into the light and begins to talk. You see, John is explicitly shaping this to highlight to the reader, Jesus is fully in charge. This is not a man who is a victim. This is not a man who is passive. This is not a man who is uh, kind of mamby-pamby. I don't know what to do. This is a man who is fully in charge of the situation. He steps into the light, and interestingly, who's the first to talk? Jesus. In fact, actually, John leaves out the whole part about the kiss. Doesn't even bring it in. Why? Because he's highlighting for us so that we as readers, our brains catch on. Jesus is in charge. Whom do you seek? I suspect it probably was not quite as wimpy of a tenor as what I use. My answer, Jesus of Nazareth. Okay. So what does Jesus say? I am he. Now, there's a technical grammar thing here that we don't really catch well. English is a bit weak in this regard. He's taking the New Testament usage of the Old Testament name of God. So when he answers them, he's not just saying grammatically, I'm Jesus. He's also saying Yahweh. He is explicitly identifying himself both in their presence as God and as man right in their midst. And interestingly, God in his infinite wisdom and mercy couples some sort of divine punch with it. So when he says it, they get knocked back. That phrasing of they fell to the ground, the way that's written is explicitly connected throughout the New Testament, always connected to one thing, and that is the arrival of glory. Like when the heavens open and the angels begin to sing, everyone falls on the ground. It's glory language. And it's interesting, what is the glory connected to? It's not the glory cloud of God like you normally have, where the angels show up and they're reflecting the divine glory from heaven. Instead, it's Jesus speaking the name of God. I am God. And they're like, I can't. And they're out and they fall over. In fact, actually, you get the impression that they fall over so badly, they're so wrecked by the glory of God that Jesus has to start the conversation with the guys behind them again. <laughs> oh, yeah, by the way, who were you seeking again? <laughs> um, I don't know. The guy in front of me was the guy talking to you, but he's like passed out on the ground right now. So I guess I'll talk to you, I guess. I don't really want to because I'm a little freaked out at this point. But OK, we'll have a conversation. See, John is telling this so that when you read it, you don't read this as wimpy, passive, oh no, I'm in trouble, I might mess up my perfectly coiffed you know, $900 haircut with amazing conditioner, oh no, I'm in trouble, Jesus, that we like to have in American evangelicalism. This is not the portrait of a passive man. This is the portrait of a God who already has death by the throat and is making sure it happens. It's pretty cool. John's telling this story so that when we read it, we're thinking Jesus is the one orchestrating all of it. 
He goes to the place where he knows his enemy is going to betray him. He's made sure the one that he's trained knows all of the information needed to betray him in the most intimate and painful of fashion. He's made sure the devil is going to be in him. He's not protecting Judas from the devil. The devil's there. He's going to make sure it happens. He's made sure everything is going to happen. He's picked the busiest weekend of the year. He's made sure he's had the triumphal entry so they think he's king so that the crowds will betray him. He's orchestrated this from the very beginning. He's not a passive victim. And he's going to follow it all the way through. John's going to highlight this. He's going to follow it all the way through so that when he goes to the cross, how does he die? He gives up his spirit because he's in charge of even that. They can't even take his life from him. They can't even kill him correctly because he's in charge. Just ponder that for a moment. (laughs) They can't even betray him correctly, and they can't even murder him correctly because he's so in charge. It's done the way he wants. And I, I might just suggest, as we've been in the faith for a long time, some of us, maybe we've lost a little bit of that just kind of wonder again at that. And this week, thinking about it, it's been fun to just, again, ponder anew. Jesus is so powerful. I mean, I know that. I mean, you know that. He's the agent of creation. I mean, he helped make aardvarks, which is an amazing thing, because they're the most hideous creature. He's amazing. We we get that. But yet, somehow, when it comes time for his suffering, we kind of check that out and forget, like, oh, yes, he's in charge of even that. John doesn't stop highlighting that, though. He, he, there's a second thing here that he's going to highlight. And uh, I love that he actually, the, the format that he does this is a bit staggering. So as he's telling this story here, a standard Jewish way of telling this would have been to kind of tell the story and then periodically interject quotes from the Old Testament so that it makes sense. We, we see this happen all the time kind of throughout the rest of the scriptures. Hebrews 1, it starts talking about how God has revealed himself in many times, many places, many ways. And then the author strings together a series of about seven quotes of Old Testament scripture to kind of go, oh yeah, by the way, you Hebrews, here's your Old Testament proof that what's happening is actually happening. Here's your, your understanding. The second thing John does here, he's going to use a quote to highlight exactly why this is happening. But interestingly and kind of staggering, he doesn't quote the Old Testament. He quotes Jesus himself. He's kind of cluing in like, oh, yeah, by the way, there's something bigger happening here. (laughs) Pay attention, flashing red light, and like, catch this. This is important. We're not going to go to the Old Testament. We're actually going to go to the original source itself. We're going to hear from God himself verbally from his own mouth. And what, what does he say? Verse 7, whom do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. I love it. They've been knocked down. He has to start the conversation with the next group here. Jesus says, verse 8, I told you I'm he. So if you seek me, let these men go. You want me, let all the others go. 
Verse 9, this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Notice John's quoting prophecy now, but he's quoting Christ. He's putting Christ on par with the scriptures, which he absolutely is. He is the living word. Fulfill the word he had spoken, verse 9. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Jesus recognizes the fragility, just the the tenuous, the knife-edge kind of faith of his disciples. And he knows they're not ready yet. Their faith isn't quite baked long enough for them to be able to handle imprisonment. Now, of those 11 men that are standing captured behind him, you've got Roman guards right next to them. They probably got their hands out or up or something, you know, daggers and swords next to them. Out of those 11, almost all of them are going to die imprisoned in a terrible, gruesome fashion. But Jesus knows they're not ready yet. And the second thing that John highlights for us is Christ's mission is both the salvation and the safety of his people. It's interesting, he's not just going to the cross to fix sin. It's not just, oh, he went to the cross, he died on the cross, he paid for sin, and now we can move on. It's a bigger, fuller, richer, larger picture than that. He's orchestrating this so that his death will be accomplished. But even as he's doing it, he's protecting his people and fulfilling scripture. You want me? That's fine. I'll go. Let them go. They're not ready yet. They will be. In fact, actually, just a handful of years, they're all going to be dead. Almost. There'll be a couple left. But almost all of them are going to be dead. Not long. And they're going to die for the faith. And they're going to die in terrible ways. Traditionally, one of them was crucified upside down. Traditionally, one of them was split in two. They all die terrible fashions, except for John and I think one other. But Jesus is concerned for the safety and the salvation of his people. Even in this moment, as he's orchestrating it, he he provides for them. Now again, this is where you get to see how much John is highlighting the authority of Jesus. Because here you have a better part of a Roman battalion mixed with the high priest and his godfather uncle who used to be in charge and their own little minions and peons and all of their own people around. And Jesus is, in essence, the convict in their midst. And Jesus strikes a bargain and guess what? They obey him right away. Again, how crazy is that you got hundreds of people around him and jesus like oh yeah by the way you want me they go free and they're like okay that sounds good to me that's fair deal i guess sure go ahead you're free to go and they let them all go jesus is in charge of the whole situation which is again spectacular the homeless uneducated traveling rabbi is standing in the midst of Rome and all that Jerusalem has to offer and he's the boss and they're not. Again, it's a marvel at who Jesus is. And I might suggest, particularly for those of you that are weary, downtrodden, hurting, sad, or suffering, to combine both of those points together in your brain and in your heart. That the God that is so powerful that nothing falls outside of his control, even his own death, 
has chosen to apply it to your safety and your salvation. That's pretty spectacular. I mean, Jesus knows, John saw everything that's going to happen to him. He knows he's about to endure the wrath of God. Just a couple of hours away, he's going to endure the wrath of God. And I'm not being facetious or melodramatic when I say, I'm not, I'm not going, you know, hyperbole. To say there is literally nothing worse in the world. There is literally nothing worse in creation to experience than what he's about to experience. It's impossible to feel something worse than what he's about to experience. I'll put it that way. You cannot feel worse than what he's about to go through. And even in the midst of it, he's caring for the safety of his bonehead disciples. And we're about to see how boneheaded they actually are. So for your circumstances, if you're in that, again, sad, sick, depressed, struggling, you know, weary, downcast, broken... He's caring for you in the same fashion. This great Savior who's in charge of time and space, who's spoken them into existence, He is caring for you. No less carefully. No less tenderly. No less intimately. But John does include something here at the end for us specifically. And I think he highlights the average Christian in a way that I think is just beautiful. I cannot tell you how many times this next part fits my own experience. I know it fits yours. Jesus tells them, let them go. Verse 9, John says, well, that's to fulfill the prophecy. So they are let go. And immediately, what does Peter do? Grabs his own sword and starts attacking the Romans. Well, in this case, he gets the guy closest to him, which isn't a Roman. He's probably a younger kid. He's a servant of the high priest, which, again, is hysterical. A kid, I learned this on the flannel graph, and it was like, you know, 5v5, and you're going, well, it's not great odds, but it's doable. No, 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 no. This is like 11 versus 400. This is not a winnable fight. What's Peter actually doing? well-intended death for all of them. You see, what he's doing is he's actually accomplishing his own death. They were just like, oh, now you're going to go attack them? What do you think they're going to do to all of you now? They're going to kill you, and where are they going to kill you? Where you stand. You don't make it out of the garden at that point. You're gone. It's over. Your story's finished. They don't care. You attacked Roman centurions. It's finished. They're not nice people. You see, the third point here, and this is perhaps the one that I think relates to us the most in terms of our own understanding, is please do not ever mistake good intentions for obedience because they are not the same. Do not mistake good intentions for obedience. Because you see, Peter, actually, I think he probably has the best of intentions here. Jesus has just set them free, and what's Peter like? Defend Jesus! Ah! You know, he hacks this kid's ear off. And you're like, I, lo- I love the heart. I love the spirit behind that. I mean, that, that is how heroes go out. I mean, think about how many of our movies and everything. We're like, yeah, I love the hero who sacrificed himself on a noble cause. I love that guy. It's like, yeah, but that's not obedience. In fact, actually, it's flat out disobedience. Because let's actually just for imagine for a moment, it's actually successful. 
What happens? Jesus doesn't go to the cross? Oh, that's fantastic, Peter. You go to hell now. Hmm, that's less than desirable outcome for you, I guess. In fact, actually, we all go to hell. That would be a problem. Okay, so let's just say it's not successful, and they all get killed right there in the garden. Well, what happens to the church then? All of your officers were just killed in one moment. Hmm, again, not really a desirable answer. You see, Peter's actually missing the point. He's missing the point that Jesus is the one controlling. He's the one who's in charge of it. He's the one who has everything operating the way he wants it to be. And so Peter, instead of following the words of Christ, reads his own actions into his own good intentions. And I'm going to say, I think he has the best of intentions in mind. Look, verse 10, Peter having a sword probably this big, draws it. <laughs> you know why he cuts his ear off? It's because he's swinging his head, and his head happened to be moving out of the way because he saw this crazy guy's about to try to cut my head off. He's fully trying to kill this kid. He dives out of the way, gets his ear instead. Jesus picks it up, heals it back, puts it back on. Uh, <laughs> interesting, John's the only one who identifies who does this because by this point, both men are probably dead. Peter's already gone, so he can afford to say who Peter is because Peter's in heaven by this point. Um, likewise, he can identify Malchus because Malchus has probably gone too. But what does Jesus say to Peter? Put your sword into its sheath. Why? I think this is probably the most intriguing part of the entire passage to me, this last clause. Because the implication is you having your sword out of your sheath has the potential to, in theory, upset the plan I've been accomplishing for the last several decades really since the creation of the world. I mean, obviously it doesn't. Jesus is in charge, but shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me, that cup of wrath, that cup of judgment? He's saying, Peter, what are you doing? You knucklehead, what are you doing? You're missing the point. You are in your best of intentions doing the very thing that would condemn you. You're trying to stop me in my plan. You're trying to stop me from going to the cross. And the whole point is, I've been orchestrating this before the world existed. Don't stop me. Let me do it. You're trying to unintentionally, with the best of intentions, fight against the plan I had for you. Stop fighting me and get on my side. Put the sword away. It's time for me to die, and it's not time for you to yet. I've got that taken care of. You've got a decade left. And I would suggest humbly this is the reality of you and me. That I, I mean, we love the Lord. I firmly believe that. We love the Lord. And because we love the Lord, we wish to serve Him, and we wish to serve Him, and we do just, like a child, right? Think of it this way. Mom and dad are working in the house, and they're like, you know, we need to, we gotta, we've got to repaint part of the house. And so they've spent, you know, all day and they've repainted the den and they've repainted the kitchen and they, you know, let the kids play or whatever. And they go into the kid's bedroom. And what have the kids been doing? Well, because mom and dad are painting, we want to join in with mom and dad. So they've taken whatever they can find and decided to paint the walls in their own room when their crayons and their markers and the Sharpies they can find and whatever else. It's wonderfully well-intentioned. They're trying to help mom and dad. But is it obedient? No. In fact, actually, what do you do to those children? <laughs> they get disciplined for it. It's well-intentioned disobedience. And I would suggest that maybe for many Christians, that's actually the story of our lives. 
well-intentioned disobedience. Where instead of saying, God, what does your word say? I'm just going to do that. You just tell me what to do and I'll do it. We try to find all sort of kind of crazy ways to be able to, with the best of intentions, make things more complicated or other than how they read. Instead of just obeying him. It's not that complicated. I mean, honestly, what what do we think of? What what are the laws that we need to obey as God's people? How do we serve the Lord? Well, not pulling out the sword and hacking people's heads off, but how about we love? Cultivate joy. Practice peace. Seek to have a gentle spirit. Have poverty of spirit. Have meekness. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Have patience with one another. Be quick to forgive. Slow to anger. Abound in steadfast love. These are not complicated things. I mean, sure, sometimes there are situations, really, I generally don't know how that works. I don't, I don't know what gentleness in this situation looks like. And okay, fair enough, that means you need wisdom and you need to be in Proverbs and you need to hear a sermon this evening. But it's not that complicated. He knows the best answer and he's told us what to do. So we as his people, if we love him, our our joyful responsibility. It's not because we earn our way to heaven in any way. In fact, actually, it's because his mercy is so kind that he says, the more you obey me as a saint, the more treasures you get in heaven. Understand, that's how gracious he is with his law. Don't practice good intentions. Practice what I've told you to do. And you know why? Because when you die and you get on the other side of life, guess what happens? You get all of the treasures that you've stored up. You want to have great treasures in the life to come, which you will get to enjoy for eternity? Store them up now. And in case you haven't realized it, not everybody gets the same thing in heaven. I mean, everyone gets, it's great. Everyone, it's great in heaven. But everyone's treasures aren't identical. You have the privilege to store up as many as you want. As many as you want. As many as you can. In joyful obedience now. You see, John's preaching a sermon to the reader. And it's a sermon that kind of in essence has two parts to it. Part one is to just have your mind blown by who Jesus is. And the second part is to say, now in light of that, please go obey him if you love him. If you love him, go obey him. If you understand just the slightest bit about how great and grand he is, not great, go obey him. It's not complicated, go obey him. But you noticed I did put a caveat in there, didn't I? If you know him and if you love him. And you see, that's the point that John's been building to all along through this, is to challenge us to, do we know him and do we love him? Is he a a savior that we understand intellectually far off because we've heard the stories of Jesus since we were a child or in church every Sunday? Or is he indeed my savior? Because what he's accomplishing here is a salvation that he gives freely. There's no cost to it. It cost him everything. cost us nothing. You just have to receive it. He gives generously. 
So John challenges us with these things. If you know him, if you love him, obey him. If you don't know him, if you don't love him, well, there's a different story altogether. It's time to know him. Because there's only two sides to the whole story, light and dark. It's how he started the book. It's how he's continuing the book and how he's going to finish the book. Which side will we be on at the end of days? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus, that he's in charge of salvation. That's wonderful to know. He wasn't tricked onto the cross. He wasn't trapped there. It wasn't like Satan got one over on him. Oh, look, I tricked Jesus. Thank you that he went there intentionally to pay for our sins that we might have forgiveness. Lord, we do ask that you would help us to know him and love him and that you would help us to obey you. Lord, we recognize we sometimes have good intentions, sometimes don't. But either way, we do need to obey you, for it is good for us and glorious to you. And we do ask your help. Give us your spirit that we may do these things, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.